0: And we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We finished with verse number four. And in that introduction, we were looking at majorly setting up the context of the whole letter. And we saw how it's framed by Jude's exhortation. That context is framed by Jude's exhortation that we contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We elaborated on the warnings the New Testament gives the church about the enemies that would arise from among our own fellowships and lead people astray. As we continue the letter, we're going to examine the characteristics of these internal enemies so we can be faithful to contend for the truth as God has commanded us. So let's begin tonight in verse number five. It says this. Now I want to remind you, although you once... Fully knew it that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Mm-hmm. Now it seems that a self-evident truth about false believers is that they don't actually believe what they say they do. You would, that's assumed in the in the name false believer, um, but that's sometimes we don't think through the. Um, ramifications of that statement. Remember, Jude is giving us a lens here to analyze professing Christians. He warns there are many that are pretenders, and these details that he's giving us should help us be able to recognize pretenders. And the first point is obvious. False believers don't actually believe. Now, how do, you, how do we recognize a person who doesn't truly believe what they say they do? Well, let's go back to James 2. We spent a lot of time in in the book of James. In James chapter 2, we're going to read verse 14 and verse 8, I mean, verse 14 up to verse 18. And it says this What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So what James is explaining there is that it's a person's fruit that they produce that proves whether God's spirit is really in them or not. It is not our works that produce salvation, but God's genuine salvation in our lives always produces fruits. So it's a person's actions that demonstrate what they truly believe. For example, I could say that I support, depending on which uh, social group you're in, you might um, not speak up very highly for one political party or the other, you know, and that's just to avoid backlash within a certain group of people that you're talking to. But what will show where your actual affiliation lies? your voting ballot if you go in and vote that will prove where your your affiliation your allegiance actually is so if we consider for example the popular promoters of prosperity theology in the church today in the church I say that with quotation marks do they actually do what they tell other people to do do prosperity teachers actually practice what they preach do they give away what they have to the lord Do they build hospitals? Do they open schools? Do they operate orphanages? In general, no, they do not. We see them collecting an ever-amassing pile of wealth from the doctrine of giving they teach, but do not practice. Jesus spoke similarly about the teachers in his day in Matthew 23, beginning in verse 2. Matthew 23 from verse 2 up to verse 4. Give you a moment to get there. It says this. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. These men did not practice the very difficult works they demanded of their hearers. We see then that it is a person's actions that show us what they truly believe. The Israelites were rescued by God from Egypt, as Jude describes here in verse 5, only to be destroyed, to be destroyed later in the wilderness. And why was that? According to what Jude says, it's because when it came time to exercise faith in God, they proved they didn't actually have any faith in God. Mm-hmm. They did not believe. That's the same thing that the writer of Hebrews affirms about that generation. Something else to note from what Jesus says in this passage in Matthew 23 is that a false believer might sometimes teach what is true. Notice he he, he says to listen to what the scribes and Pharisees tell the people to do because they sit on moses' seat what is what is he saying from that? they're the ones reading publicly the Word of God, which is the truth, so even if they only go so far as to read the Word of God in the in the synagogue and so forth, they're saying what is true, and in their exposition of it they they might err, but they might also be able to take some things like expound on thou shalt not kill," thou shalt not commit adultery, which are all true biblical things, okay? But we see here that that doesn't necessarily mean that they are of God or that they're serving the Lord. Therefore, we have to examine beyond superficial similarities and the agreeable statements to the proof of someone's length. Let's go on in verse 6 and 7, which say this in, in, in the book of Jude, And the angels Jude describes two groups that did not stay within the natural boundaries created for them by God. The demons followed Satan in his rebellion against God, thus losing their proper position. The inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah gave themselves wholly to the defiling lusts of their flesh, and they were destroyed for it. This is another hallmark characteristic of false believers. They do not stay within the sacred boundaries defined by God. Adam and Eve's sin demonstrates this behavior, this tendency of man's sinful nature. Rather than than us accepting what is forbidden by God and staying within what God says is acceptable to him, we are discontent with what we possess and we take what God has forbidden from us, what God has not given to us. For example, and this is where certain I was I was talking to Ken about this today after church. This is where there are certain issues that we sometimes describe as being secondary issues, and by that we mean that okay, it doesn't necessarily change the gospel. So maybe we shouldn't make it such a big issue. But there are secondary issues that become primary when we consider the implications of a person's refusal to submit to what God's word has to say. So the example I'm going to give give us comes from God's instructions for women in his word. If we go first to 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 14, and then we're going to be in Titus 2 right after that. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14 says this, So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. And in Titus chapter 2, from verse 3 up to verse 5, we read, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So from those passages, where do we see a woman's position of ministry centers? At least in especially the early days of of family life. It centers at home, right? Right? Now, it makes sense in God's model of the family, if he sends one parent primarily to work out in the world, and you do not take your children with you every day to work for obvious reasons, multiple different reasons, well, who is ministering to your children to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Take care. Well, bad news if if that is the case. But it's a, a bit of a what's the, what's the word satirical humor, uh, ironic humor, because sadly that is the truth for a lot of Christian families. Mm. We're 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 turning over the responsibility of training our children to outsiders, people who you don't know what it is they believe, what they stand for, and so forth. And if you asked any parent who the most important people to them are, who would they say? Mm-hmm. Your your children, you would do anything for your children, right? Paul talks about wishing that he himself could be accursed for the sake of his um, fellow Israelites. That's the love he had for his nation. I think parents, you know, I would fear to ever be accursed and separated from God. Uh, Because if you look at scripture and you know God, just like that, that is the most fearful reality in the world to me. But if there's one person that I would be willing to trade places with in that situation, it would be any one of my children that doesn't know the Lord. Okay, And God has defined a person, he's equipped a person, created a person to minister to those young people at home. If if I look back on my my upbringing, I was talking to my mom the other evening, uh, just kind of laughing and joking about different personality traits that we see in myself and my siblings that come either from more mom or more dad. And um, if, I was to, if I was to say, you know, because my dad was full-time ministry and he worked full-time to provide for us, and we spent a lot more time with mom, both in, in school, in devotions, and everything, being shepherded by mom. So, not, and that doesn't mean that men are not present in the home and aren't the ones leading and having that responsibility, but in general, mom spends way more time with the kids. So, as I look at myself and my siblings, it's interesting because I would say I see my dad's personality come out stronger in each of us in different ways, but I see the shape of who we are more influenced by mom's lessons from when we were very little. And I think that's a, a, a special blessing that God has given to mothers. In that, um, in a passage that we're going to read after this, in 1 in Timothy 2, uh, let's, let's read it so you understand the context of, of what I'm saying here. So, we've said that a, a woman's position of ministry centers at home, and then there's a position that they are forbidden from having in the church. In 1 Timothy 2, From verse 11 to verse 15, it says this, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Then notice this, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. I think verse 15 talks about how uh, a, a mother is vindicated and justified and redeemed from the stigma of being the ones that led people into sin by actually raising a generation to fear God and follow God. Um, or was it Napoleon that said that the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world? Mm-hmm. It's interesting if you go through the history of the kings in the books of 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, who's always mentioned along with the king in their introduction their mom you know and it's kind of like well why why do they do that well i think there's an a direct implication for who mom was and what she trained her son to do um one of the one of the um very great things that i would say about both my parents um so like for example um i've seen where a mother will allow things in a marriage to bring her children onto her side against that. I don't know if you've ever been familiar with a family dynamic like that. Um, in my in my upbringing, and I don't mean to pick on my mom and dad tonight, but I've been picked on so many times in certain <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if all the things all are the sure, I can't. <laughs> well, it's not in my notes, so I'm going to claim that it is. <laughs> it just came to me. Uh, no, but so... My mom and dad have very different personalities. My mom came from a, a very conservative, small Baptist background. My dad came from listening to the Beatles, shooting up with drugs and doing all these different things before he got saved. And God, in his wisdom, ordained that these two would, would join together and become one. And so obviously it creates in our flesh some some um, process, some friction in our sanctification. But... Um, just in their personalities and communication styles, uh, my dad was much more aggressive than my mom was passive. And when she got her feelings, she was quiet and so forth. Now, myself and my siblings, children naturally being sensitive and tender, you know, we would tend to be on, "Hey, dad's being mean to mom." You know, that's, that was our interpretation of things. You know, but something that was just wonderful about um, my parents instruction to us is both of them would use the word of God to show us when their behavior wasn't right with what God says. I remember there was times where, you know, uh, one of us, we, mom, we'd catch mom crying or whatever, and we'd go over there, you oh, know, that bad man or whatever. We didn't ever say that, but maybe we thought it, you know. Um, but my mom was faithful. She would tell us, no, I haven't been submitting to dad in a right way. And yeah, the way that we communicated with each other, whatever, you know, dad will talk to you about that. But, you know, God's working on me in my heart, that I have rebelliousness and, and, and lack of doing what God tells me to do as dad's wife. So mom wouldn't let us try and get that 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 back and forth and whatever. And this is where I mean that moms, you have such a, a God-given position to shape the way that your children respond and look at things. That's such a blessing from God. And what happens when you leave that position and take on what is forbidden from you, do you know who you lose? Do you know who the ones that that suffer the most are? I can't tell you how many women I've met in ministry in Uganda who have children that are not living for the Lord. And why is that? Well, I can't say that each and every single case would have been different if mom would have been faithful at home. But it is very interesting to me to find the connection between a mom who leaves the position of ministry that God has assigned her, takes what he has not assigned her, and then she loses what is really most valuable to her mother. Right? Interesting. I want to read one other text in 1 Corinthians 14 along that to conclude this point. 1 Corinthians 14 from verse 33 on Says this, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Now, in concluding this point, I, I warned you that some secondary issues have primary implications when they demonstrate a person is unwilling to submit to God's instruction. Okay, the the wording that Paul uses here about not being recognized. If you will not recognize that, you know, this is just the way God has ordained it. And we just need to submit to it, whether we grew up in that environment, whether we agree with it, whatever. Because God says it's like this, we're going to obey it. If you do not do that, Paul says you're not recognized. And the implication is, to me, he's tying in a reference where people will say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, didn't we do Many mighty works in your name. Didn't we cast out demons in your name and so forth? And what is Jesus' response to them? I never knew you. I don't know you. I see you and I don't recognize you. I don't know who you are. So this this is something that is very crucial that we consider. Women are forbidden from having positions of teaching or oversight over men. Now, I'm not saying that every woman or church who allows women to be in this position in those positions is void of any genuine believer but according to what jude writes it is a very damning characteristic when people refuse to stay within the boundaries that god has defined we might say some differences in interpretation are secondary because they don't change the gospel and as i said that can be true But we see clearly that rejection of God's boundaries actually causes you to fit the description God gives of a false believer. So we should be on our guard with people who continue to resist God's boundaries rather than submitting to them. Now let's continue on back in Jude. Let's read verse 8. It says this. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh... Reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. I can tell by the way this is going that part two is going to become a part two A and a part two B. But we'll, we'll soldier on here. You, we didn't do music tonight in the Lord's providence, so I got more time here. So verse eight has four characteristics that Jude mentions. He lists four and we'll look at each of them one by one. So first of all, he says of false believers, they rely on their dreams. Okay. False believers do not appeal to the Bible for their beliefs, but rather to their own opinions or other people who support their opinions. There was once I was dialoguing with a, a lady who said that she had a dream that God called her to be a, a pastor. And that that's, it happened to her when she was in high school. And so that was when, when I shared scripture with her and said, you know, I don't think you should be in this position because of what the Bible says. That was what she responded with, that, no, I've had this dream, so I, I believe that's what I should be doing. And when I read those passages of Scripture to her, it was one of the first times she had seen it. And then she came back to me sometime later. She said, you know, you, you, you served me very poorly by giving me that. And I had to go and find a study Bible to really find out what those passages meant. <laughs> and uh, if, you have to, if you have to find a study Bible, if you have to search for somebody's translation and commentary that fits with what you think. What you're pursuing is not the truth. Mm -hmm. What you're pursuing is what you want to be true. Mm -hmm. And it's a characteristic of false believers. I've heard many people in Uganda justify their positions because of dreams they have. But the Bible tells us that for a message to come from God, it must agree with the revelation of God's word. God gave the Israelites this example in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 13. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 13, or if I'm moving too fast and you just want to listen to me read it, that's fine too. Um, but a very interesting passage, passage I use all the time in the, in the Ugandan church context on this, this point. Beginning in verse 1, it says this, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, that's a supernatural event, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God, notice this, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. What did Jesus, I think maybe it was you cannot mention this verse to me today. What did Jesus define as proving that you love him? keep Keep my commandments. Very good. So God is testing you to see whether you love him with all your heart. And that test is passed by obeying him. It says you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery. To make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Mm. So we see that even supernatural acts, which you cannot explain from the, the material realm, are to be tested in light of God's commands. If someone contradicts what God has told us to do, we are to reject them as a source of information. If they contradict what God says, you just let it go. You turn away from it. This is where we see it's vital for Christians to have an accurate knowledge of truth by reading the Bible. God says if we know his word, it's easy to recognize empty opinions of false believers. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 28 and 29, God says this, Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? If you tried to make a loaf of bread from straw, and then you made one from wheat, would there be any comparison between the two of them? No, not at all. (laughs) is, Is that your testimony now after tasting French bread? All right. That'll be interesting to get your, your insights on that trip afterwards. There was a time uh, in Uganda where I was... We we used to have a huge problem with monkeys in our farm. We had all these tall trees and uh, the monkeys are really... Um, if they have trees for cover, you just can't do anything about them because they go from a tree to a tree to a tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the funniest stories I heard um, from one of our staff years ago was about a guy who didn't speak any English, but he knew the word monkey, and he was one of our farm farm workers. And um, one of our overseers came to find out why is the farm not doing well? You know, why are all the crops in such disarray and whatever? And the problem was that the monkeys were coming in and uprooting everything and eating everything, but the only English word he knew was monkey. So, the, and and the guy who told me this story, you know, he he had he had pleasure at the other two's you know misfortune because he could have translated but he said it was funnier to watch him try to explain with just monkey so the guy was going monkey monkey, monkey 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 you know like just just like that so anyways we decided finally okay time to chop down the forest here otherwise we're never going to be able to grow anything um, and I had gotten a hatchet. Which no one at, and at my staff had ever seen before. Um, the axes that we have, you and you wouldn't believe them. Um, they're they're welded onto a thick, um, I don't know how how thick uh, pipe of, that you would use for plumbing, but pipe around like that thick. So it's like by itself, when you pick up the rod, it's like 15 to 20 pounds, you know. And then you put the axe head on top of that. So when you swing one of those all day, you know, you're getting some exercise. And then the big problem with them that pipe just reverberates in your hand you know so it also it hurts so when i found this hatchet i was like you know praise the lord <laughs> i'm not using that axe anymore mm-hmm. but one day i went down to start working on you know a couple big trees with my hatchet and uh, uh tata elijah our house father from family three i i see him up on the escarpment up on top of the hill he sees me and i wave to him and i keep on working and i see him start jogging down the hill and i like you know what I wonder what's going on. He seems in a hurry to come and see me. And he 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 gets over to me and he says, Uncle, what are you doing? And I said, Elijah, am I not supposed to chop this tree down? And he says, No, you're supposed to chop the tree down, but Uncle, you're never gonna chop the tree down with a hammer. And uh, <laughs> and uh, that gives you a little bit of insight into how how dumb they think Mazungus are too. And there's there's certain things like, you know. They would appeal to me maybe for help with their their smartphone download an application something like that but when it comes to agriculture they think I'm as backwards as can be and and they're pretty right you know I've, I've shown that in the past but I showed then I showed it to him like no this is it's got an accent on it. it's called a hatchet and he was like oh uncle you Americans you have the best thing <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's a, it's an interesting analogy for this text what what? There is no commonality between God's word and anything else. There's no comparison. God's word alone is what, what stands. And it, it brings everything. When, when Jesus talks about warring against false believers and false teachers and false churches, what does he war against them with? What is his weapon? It's always the sword of his mouth. And that's the word of God. And the Word of God is what will always contradict a false believer. Okay, so um, that's point number one. They, these people rely not on what God has said, but their own meditation, their own uh, insight. It's, it's often things that you have no ability to test yourself. Like as we're teaching the Word of God, you each not only have an ability, but you have a responsibility according to scripture to see if what I'm saying actually agrees with what's here, because this is what's true. You don't know what I'm saying about it is true. So we have a standard, right, where you can test what I'm saying, but if I just say to you, you know, God gave me this dream, and uh, he told me he wants us to do this and so forth, it's like, well, uh, how do we know if God gave him the dream? And God says, well, go and look at my word. If it doesn't come from my word, that dream did not come from me, or that insight, or that interpretation, or whatever. So that's point number one from verse eight. Number two about these people, Jude says they defile the flesh. We touched on this in verse four last Sunday, but it's worth noting again here. The Bible gives us these purpose statements about the redemption of our bodies by Jesus. There's multiple of these, but these are two great passages that speak to that. The first one from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, from verse 3 up to verse 8, it says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's a purpose statement. This is the will of God, your sanctification, to be set apart for God's use, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And then a correlating text is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, from verse 17 to verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, from verse 17 to verse 20 says, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price so glorify God in your body. We see that God has redeemed us to be set apart to be his temple. We are the temple of the presence of God. As such, we are to be a pure and holy residence for the spirit of God, who has been made one with us through Christ. False believers pervert this purpose of the flesh. In, For example, if you go back into some dualistic philosophies of Gnosticism, members of this group encouraged people to do whatever they wanted in the flesh because the flesh was totally evil and corrupted while the spirit was totally separate and good so therefore you could justify do whatever you want in the body that's sold under sin that's you know unredeemed unregenerate whatever do whatever you want in the flesh because it's only the spirit that is alive this gave license to indulge the appetites of the flesh Rather than bringing them into captivity to obey Christ, those who cast off moral restraint fit within this description of false believers. I was just watching a, a video uh, by Pastor Jeff Durbin of Apologia Ministries uh, a couple of days ago, where he was responding to uh, anybody familiar with progressive Christianity. You've heard of that term before, okay? So it's it's uh, you know it's it's a false movement based on interpreting scripture however you want it to be is essentially interpreting it to fit your your lifestyle there's a there's a popular progressive christian pastor none of those words fit together (laughs) except for christian and pastor those go together but not when you have progressive in front of it but that's what his title would be he is someone who practices homosexuality and encourages people to um, disregard conservative bible teaching and he He justifies it in the manner of saying that everybody who looks at the Bible in a literal way just has poor hermeneutics, (laughs) which is a very interesting hermeneutical principle. (laughs) And he certainly didn't learn in any Bible college or or seminary or good Bible teaching church. But so that's that's an example. When you see someone promoting something like that, like God doesn't care about your sexual orientation. You just, you know, he, he loved you so much he sent his son to die for you. And that's leaving off what we just read in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 6, which, yes. he And it, what's interesting in 1 Corinthians 6 is Paul says, after he gives that list of, know you not that the sexually immoral, those who practice homosexuality, the greedy idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. What's very interesting is right after that, Paul says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were set apart. Not, not so you could keep doing that. But you could be different so you could live for the purposes of Christ. So that's point number two from verse eight. Point number three, they reject authority. Correlating with relying on their own minds as the source of their revelation, false believers reject the authority of God's word. When you respond to a false believer's contradiction of the Bible, they reject the Bible's authority. That's how they respond to it. They will respond with things like accusing you of being narrow or perhaps even of limiting the Holy Spirit. You know, accusing you that, you know, God hasn't just spoken to you. He's spoken to me as well. And I I hear that accusation quite often uh, in ministry and in Uganda. And and I say, well, God hasn't just spoken to you and I. He's spoken to all of us, but he's spoken to us through his word. So let's see if we agree with with what he is saying. This refusal to submit to the authority of God's word, transforming each of us from how we used to think and act, reveals they are not born of God, according to what Jude says here. God describes Satan's rejection of his authority like this. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 14, beginning in verse number 12, it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star. Son of Dawn. Depending which translation you read, that might read Lucifer. That's where we get the the name for Satan when he was God's anointed cherub before he fell. But the meaning of it is Daystar, Son of Dawn. It says, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. Now notice this progression in Satan's rebellion against God. It says, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. We see false believers always exalt themselves to a position that has not been given to them. That's a hallmark characteristic of false believers. They want more, and the more that they want is supremacy above everybody else. They want everybody else coming to them honoring them, paying attention to them. That's a motive of false believers. They lust for more rather than being content and joyful in what God has assigned them. In doing this, each of them ultimately sets themselves up as their own God. Jesus made this statement about the Jews' rejection of his authority in Luke chapter 19 as he was telling a parable. Verse 14 of Luke 19 says this, but his citizens hated him And sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. False believers want to rule. They do not want to be ruled. If you look at modern American culture and Western culture, isn't one of the classic things in our culture. We do not want to be ruled. Don't tell me what I can and can't do. Don't tell me what my identity is. Don't tell me this and this and this. That's a hallmark of man's rebellious nature. Mm -hmm. It makes us look like not God being our father, but Satan being our father. Because that was his mindset. That was his attitude. That was how he dealt with God. That's where you always find the correlation between a false congregation's lack of emphasis on teaching scripture. And their turning instead to motivational speaking or things that they say, oh, this is just so practical and helpful. You know, like it's, it's common. Uh, and not to say that this is bad, but you know, like you, you find more like churches are doing Dave Ramsey's financial assistance for, for the people because we've got all these Christians in debt and whatever. And then people get up and they're like, oh, that was so practical. You know, I don't usually get fed like that when I'm here in church. And what does that tell you? What does that tell you about their spiritual condition? If you're not fed by the word of God, if you're like, oh, this is just all going over my head and I don't agree with any of this, I don't care about this, I have no desire for it. Jude warns you, you're not born of God. You're not born of God. Rejection of authority is another characteristic that is damning to the authenticity of your faith. Then fourth, they blaspheme the glorious ones. Another quality of rejecting authority is the blasphemy of over-assumption of your own authority. That is where you claim authority you don't have. Jude gives an example correctly staying in submission to authority. When Michael argued, he gives us this example between Michael and Satan. If We're going to read verse 9 and 10 here in Jude. So there was a dispute between Michael and Satan over the body of Moses and this is one of those interesting Mm -hmm. New Testament passages where when Moses dies in in, in, uh, The Old Testament we're not told that there was any sort of grudge match between Michael and Satan over his body But apparently there was But the the, what we're gonna find here from Michael's example is the point Jude is making verses 9 and 10 Mm -hmm. say this but when the Archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. He didn't assume that God is going to back me up in in what I say to, to Satan here. But said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Notice that Michael did not handle his dispute in the arm of his own strength. He appealed to the Lord's authority to rebuke Satan's actions. Now, we might look at this and, and find that it suggests to us that Satan was more powerful than Michael. But I don't think that's the point that Jude is making. Who's the one that kicks Satan out of heaven eventually in the book of Revelation? It's Michael. Michael's the one who casts him out of heaven. And, and um, that's, what, that's what occurs in the, in the narration of the, the book of Revelation. So I think it actually shows what complete submission looks like. Because though Michael maybe had the power to deal with Satan in his own strength, he was not Satan's judge, was he? <laughs> who is the one who has the authority to condemn or to justify? It's God. He submitted, so Michael submitted the dispute to the Lord that the Lord rebuke you. It's very interesting when you listen to charismatic theologians, they make an awful lot of claims in the name of the Lord, which they have no authority to do. And they will tell you that this is the Holy Spirit that gave this to me. So they will not only blaspheme in claiming authority that they don't have, but they will blaspheme in the sense that they put words into God's mouth that he has not given them. Serious thing. In Second Peter chapter 2, from verse 10 to verse 13, we have a correlating description of angels' submission to God, though they have power to deal with things themselves. In verse 10, it says, And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. Notice that it would be blasphemy to God for the angels to declare judgment, even against these individuals who are worthy of condemnation, and the angels have the ability to destroy Because it says they're greater in might and power. Why is that? Why would it be blasphemous? Because who is the one with all authority to judge? It's Christ. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. He's the one who has the authority to pass judgment. And even Christ himself, if you look at him in Zechariah chapter 3, before he was manifested in the flesh as the son of God, when he was referred to often as the angel of the Lord, he applied this same principle that we see in these earlier two passages when he's defending Joshua the high priest and the nation of Israel against Satan's accusations. In Zechariah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, That's the angel of the Lord speaking, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? This was before Christ's work on earth was accomplished, and his father assigned him all authority in heaven and on earth. False believers do the opposite of this behavior. They presume to have authority to say what will be and what will not be. They plan not according to submitting to the will of God, as we learned about in James 4, where we make our plan, saying that the Lord wills, this is what's going to happen. But rather than that, they, just like Satan, I will, I will, I will, I will. Mm-hmm. And that's a mark, not of a follower of Christ, but someone who doesn't actually follow Christ. Mm-hmm. All right, let's look at verse number 11. And... Okay, we've got a few minutes to go here. Verse number 11. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Jude next gives us three men to consider in discerning pretenders in the faith. All three are interesting to consider. The first one is Cain. And Cain is probably the one we're all most familiar with. Cain was the firstborn son of God's original created individuals. He was the son of Adam, the son of God. So by position, he appeared in every way to belong to the family of God, correct? But Cain revealed he was not in God's family. Let's first read the story of Cain's rejected offering in Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4 from verse 3 up to verse, uh, let's read up to verse 5, verse 3 to verse 5. It says, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Now, there's speculation about why Cain's offering was rejected and Abel's was accepted. Some suggest that God must have instructed them to offer a lamb and not a grain offering. But we aren't told that in the text. So you you could speculate that, but we we aren't told if God gave them any directions, whatever. But what we can say for sure is what the Bible mentions specifically. What does Cain's anger at the Lord's rejection of his offering show us? Like if I come to church and I I put $100 in the offering plate, and then something bad happens to me later on, and I cry out against God, and I say, why did I put that $100 in your offering plate? What would that suggest about my motive for my gift? It It was for myself. It wasn't that I love God. It wasn't that I was bringing God something out of gratitude for all that he was given me. It was because I wanted something. I'm looking for a kickback here. So we can take from Cain's reaction. You can conclude his motivation for his offering was self-interest. That's the first quality in Cain that we can draw a parallel to in false believers. They don't want God, but they want something from God. Since they don't truly want God, they are not satisfied with God. Therefore, when they don't see God do what they want, they turn away. And that's a hallmark characteristic of false believers. Mm -hmm. Secondly, the Bible tells us this about Cain in 1 John 3, verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Another quality of false believers is that they are jealous of and work against true believers. You find them, they're the ones that create division in the church, and they create division because they are not true believers. They don't have the love of God controlling them, and they actually have hatred in their hearts towards other people. Remember what John tells us in in also in first john that you know how can i say i love god who i have not seen when i do not love my brother who i i know very well you know and we can be very guilty of that like lord why would you save that person you know he irritates me and so forth we don't want him in the kingdom you know and god's saying well do you really know me if i chose to save that person and you say i don't love the person that i chose to save? what does that say about you Maybe it's you that I don't want in my kingdom. (laughs) Jesus tells us in John 13 that His true followers are distinguished by this. In verse 35 of John 13, a verse we know well, it says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. False believers don't have love for other people. They love themselves. And they're controlled by that. They will only have love for those who follow along with their agenda. That's why it's very common to hear false teachers who are rebuked for contradicting God's word respond with vitriol and angry slander against those who rebuke them. Cain revealed his complete lack of love for anyone but himself when he murdered his brother. There's no more selfish act than to take someone else's life, right? Another mention of Cain is given to us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. The author says this, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. We see Cain's offering condemned here because it was not given in faith. Abel's was given in faith. Cain's was not given in faith. Romans 14.23 tells us whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. False believers do not approach God by faith, but according to their own idea of what should motivate God to give them their desired ends. These are all qualities we can draw out from the example of Cain. If you think back to the example of uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, when they're all praying, well, first, first the prophets of Baal go, and then Elijah goes. But when the prophets of Baal are Calling out for Baal to send fire down from heaven, what do they start doing? Cutting themselves. Cutting themselves, dancing around, shouting, and so forth, and that's just a great example of a person who, you don't actually believe God's going to do what you're asking, do you? You know, if you're willing to take a knife and start like, God, do it, I'm asking, you know, like as if that's going to motivate anyone to do what you want in the first place, but doesn't it demonstrate that you have no confidence that the person will actually answer what you're praying for? Mm-hmm. That's an interesting quality of false believers. They don't they don't have faith. They don't approach God in faith, they approach God in manipulation and trying to get God to do what they want rather than, God, I just have to have you. The next person that Jude mentions, and we're gonna we're gonna stop here um, because the next two. Um, man, I wanted to read their background stories in the book of Numbers because I don't think we're all as familiar with them. One is Balaam, and one is Korah. And Balaam is a man who's mentioned a couple times in the New Testament as a prophet who um, sold himself for shameful gain. So we're going to look at later on. We're going to expand on that that um, there's false believers are motivated by by money. And something else we'll see about Balaam, though, that's very interesting is that Balaam had what appears to me to be a genuine prophetic gift and a genuine dialogue with God, where he was used to seeking answers from God and even being responded to by God. And yet we're going to see in the in the narration of his life and the events of his life, though he you could say he knew God in the sense that he had dialogue with him, didn't make any difference. He was motivated by greed, so much so that even after he went through the experience, we're going to find this out, that um, God saved his life with his donkey. Then he beat his donkey three times, and God opened the mouth of the donkey to rebuke him. Say, why do you keep beating me? You know, haven't I been a faithful donkey all these years? And Balaam is apparently so enraged that he doesn't even even process that my animal (laughs) is speaking to me. He just speaks right back to him. He's so angry. And then God reveals that he was going to be destroyed. And then he goes on to bless Israel. King Balak of Moab had hired him to curse Israel. He blesses Israel. But afterwards, we find out, even after learning all that lesson, you know that he went to King Balak of Moab and he, he connived with him. And he said, this is what you're going to do. Send women from among your people to seduce the Israelite men. Go into fornication. Have them um, do... Worship of idols so that God will be angry with them. And it is such a great illustration of that. That's how Satan works against us. Satan is not on our side. He seeks actually to make God angry with us. He wants to destroy us. And the, the, the way to destroy a person is to get God's judgment on them, to get God's curse on them. So all that, we'll leave that for the to be continued.